You're listening to Story Warriors, the podcast that helps you craft great stories. Whether you're pitching investors, preparing a conference talk, writing copy, or even a book, a powerful story will help you connect with your audience and encourage them to take action. Thanks for joining Story Warriors. I'm your host, Jack Vincent. My guest on this episode of Story Warriors is an adopted son of Poland. Patrick Ney is a Brit who, 10 or so years ago, got up and moved to Poland. Blame it on the girl. And now, not only is he an adopted son, he's one of Poland's prolific and most followed storytellers. Today, he's fluent in all things Polish, including the language, and he makes films and videos about the history, culture, and business of Poland and all of its heroes. And he himself has a story. Patrick Ney, thanks for joining me on this episode of Story Warriors. Oh, Jack, I'm happy to be here. Now, I've been waiting with uh, curious anticipation for your intro. So it was everything I was hoping it was going to be. And I, oh, I accept good. all of those compliments uh, with, with graciousness. <laughs> yeah. Well, you should, mate. You're a story unto yourself. <laughs> Patrick, I know Europe. I've been living here half my life. I lived in London on two occasions. The second time I lived there, there were many Poles coming to live in London and the UK for work primarily. But I wouldn't guess that in 2010, there were many Brits moving to Poland. What was that all about, mate? <laughs> Actually, that's, that's basically what the first two years of my time in Poland looked like. Some would go, hang on, where are you from? Say, England. Say, you live here? why <laughs> you know slack-jawed amazement uh, and it became very tiring having to explain to people why and and there's lots of reasons but you've already hit the real reason which is in 2007 i was eating a falafel kebab on shaka stephen street in freetown in sierra leone where i became rather sick due to the unsanitary conditions of the restaurant that i was eating in and, and just generally being one of the poorest countries in the world I came back to the UK um, with a rather upset tummy after three days of not eating. Instead of going to the tropical hospital, I ended up going to the pub for a little bit of British, typical adult male self-medication. Uh, <laughs> well, that is a six, hospital in Britain, no? <laughs> yeah, six, it's actually probably more effective and less dangerous. Uh, six pints later, I got a bit hungry, went to a restaurant, and the waitress there was this beautiful Polish girl dancing around the table like a ballerina. She said she worked in films, so I obviously lied and said I worked in films and maybe we should keep in contact. <laughs> which later became true. So that's an interesting form of lie and started going to Poland. And after three years in 2010, we moved to Warsaw. Did you think you were going to sweep her off her feet and bring it back, just give it time? Or you were there for the long term? You were ready to move into Poland, settle down and stay? Well, the, the first three years I was coming to Wrocław, which is in the Silesian district in the southwest. And guys, if you've never been there, it's such an interesting place. They have these beautiful Baroque castles in the, in the mountains that, you know, were occupied by the SS during the Second World War. And they're uncovering still hundreds of kilometers of underground tunnels built by slave laborers that no one, including the German armaments minister, Albert Speer, even knew what they were for. Were they for chemical weapons, nuclear warfare, storage of stolen art? There's gold trains in them, Dar Hills. And I loved visiting the place and discovering it. And it was quite exotic at the time because Poland's changed so much. I mean, talking about pace of change, it's quite hard for people in, I'm going to say, more developed countries to understand. New roads, new airports, pristine and clean and boring and modern and European and the kind of thing you might see more in Switzerland than in Poland. 
I love uh, Poland, by the way. I've been there a lot. It's awesome. You, you and I met there. But it's, a, it's an everyman story because that's exactly the same thing that everyone was saying. You know, fell in love with the woman, fell in love with the cheap beer, fell in love with the interesting culture, which is not well understood uh, outside of Poland uh, for obvious reasons. It's only been a free country for 30 years. And they speak a rather spiky, hustly, brushy tongue. So the process for me was as much falling in love with a country and a people as it was with a woman. Well, you and I live parallel lives in many ways. I mean, <laughs> I moved abroad for a woman, Spain, the first time. <laughs> Speak another language near fluently, certainly fluidly, and then settled down. Uh, what happened to the woman? Don't know, but uh, stayed. <laughs> uh, so I fell in love with Spain, too. And now I'm, I reside in Switzerland, spend a lot of time in Spain. I absolutely love that country. I became European in Spain. So you fell in love with Poland. You chose Poland. Why do you love your wife? Uh, not mentioning any wives in particular. Sometimes <laughs> it can be quite hard to explain a love because love is so complex, so deep, so rich, and it has so many different meanings, so many different people. I can't sometimes explain what attracted to me to the country, but I had this weird sensation where every time I visited, even before I moved there, I felt like I was coming home. And there's a wonderful phrase which a friend of mine once said, which is, I didn't choose Poland, Poland chose me. Poland's the kind of place where destinies are made. But at the same time, I was 27 when I decided to move over in 2010. And I'd been working in the UK government during the middle of the financial crisis. And I was a, there was the smallest possible spring or little tiny cog in the whole machinery of government. But I was also in the cabinet office whilst they were making the deals that liquidized the, the banks and kept the whole system running. You know, my mum was texting me saying, should I take my money out of the bank? And I'm saying, I don't know. I'll let you know how this goes. You know, <laughs> being a witness to all of that, it, it chewed me up. It was 110 hour weeks. It was, you know, you had to be on call all the time, 24 hours a day, every weekend. Someone rang, you had to drop what you were doing and walked out of cinemas, walked out of restaurants, walked out of pubs. That's practically a sin. And I was ready for getting away from London. I mean, when a man is tired of London, he's tired of life. I was tired of life at that age. So you fall in love with Poland. And from what I see now, you're telling stories of Poland. Poland became your muse, in a sense. Yes, it is a she. And she's a wonderful creature. She's complex and she's wonderful and beautiful. And um, the more you turn the pages, the more you get fascinated. I mean, the city of Warsaw, if you just take that as an example, it's, it's not at first sight a pretty city. It's no, it's no Prague. It's no Barcelona. And yet the character and the story of the people and the city, absolutely amazing. Yeah. And then you became a YouTube star and I don't want to call it a star, but you started putting together videos about Poland and one of your early videos all of a sudden got how many hits and how did that all happen? Well, uh, I was fascinated in Polish history and I started to uncover these, these heroes. I mean, they are heroes that no one knows about heroes of the second world war. That's the time period, which most interests me. And I remember coming to Poland, sitting with the grandmother of my ex-girlfriend and saying, stupid question, rather naive. Who did you hate more, the Nazis or the Soviets? And she said, the Russians, because they were here for you know, almost 45 years. They turfed me out of my house. They stole everything I had. God knows what else they did to her. Even though she was on a Nazi slave labor camp as a teenage girl. That just shocked me to the core. And I started to uncover these stories of people who'd done extraordinary things during the Second World War. Like, for example, Cavalry Captain Vitor Pilecki, who volunteered to go into Auschwitz and spent almost three years there over 900 days, survived death by a whisker, sent out the first reports, which were smuggled out by the underground to the wider world to say, hey, this is an extermination camp. And when the fi message finally got to Roosevelt, to other leaders, allied leaders, the, the quote which I always think is most interesting is, I understand what you're saying. I, I believe what you're saying, but I can't understand it. 
they weren't able to understand what Vitol Poletsky and his compatriots in the Polish underground were saying. So I told that story in a four or five minute YouTube short. And within two days, it had 10 million views, which is not a bad number for a history film. That is not a bad number for anything on YouTube or anywhere. It's fascinating. From there, it spawned, right? You did poetry on Poland. You did this film with war heroes or time of stress heroes. Also, it moved into heroes in the marketing sense and all of that. This is daring of you to to uncover some very uncomfortable things from what I understand. But yet it spawned, no? Yeah, I mean, I'd had a big success with a poem I wrote about Poland, which is which doesn't make any sense to a foreigner. You have to understand Polish to get it. And then I went on to doing portraits of extraordinary heroes. For example, the saint of Auschwitz, Maximilian Kolbe, who voluntarily gave up his life to save the life of a complete stranger and was sent to a, a small cell in Auschwitz, which I've had the immense privilege to be inside. You're not normally allowed to go inside, but the museum allowed me, where he was starved to death, along with 10 other men, but had to be punished for a crime. Again, it's a story which you might know if you were into Catholic uh, saints, but otherwise is unknown outside of Poland. And telling these stories, I tell you, Jack, you know what surprised me? How much it took out of me to tell those stories. So I've become more aware by doing filming, doing all sorts of things, that filming is a two-way street, but you give a lot from yourself when you're standing in front of the camera at minus 20 in Auschwitz. It draws an immense amount of energy from you. I did that for about two or three years, and it got to the point where the stories, these harrowing stories of sacrifice and courage and suffering, immense suffering, were kind of getting me down. You know, you can spend too long. When you start dreaming about concentration camps and, you know, you've got hundreds of books on the subject, it starts to get to you in a little way. So I, I spent a bit of time away from war heroes, and I've done a lot more stuff on, on everyday heroes. I love interviewing people who are running charities people doing great things from beekeepers to historians, to authors, to artists. That's, that's one of my other passions. Beautiful. Beautiful. So you're cruising along. Life is good. Yeah. I know the life of an immigrant. It has its trials and tribulations, but you work through them and, and life is good. You're hitting it with your videos. And then one day, didn't you want to go to a football match? Couldn't get tickets. So you went to the pub and then there was something moving in the shadows. Yeah. I woke up the next day after that experience in a, um, a critical ward of a neurosurgery clinic in a hospital, the Warsaw Military Institute, actually, interestingly enough, and looked up completely and utterly devastated and demolished because at some point I'd been smacked over the head with something very hard by someone. We're not entirely sure who. And to be honest, I never bothered to find out because it was immaterial for me later on. I basically had a, a fractured skull. And in typical foreign British man style, the nurse came over and said, oh, you've recovered consciousness. Um, are you okay? How do you feel? And she said, you've got a fractured skull. But I didn't know what that was because why would you know the words fractured skull? <laughs> so I thought to myself, oh, I'll just find out later on what that means. You know, as if it was a, if it was a word for a, for a chocolate or, you know, some yeah, kind of yeah, everyday household of item. Lager, yeah. ale, you know. <laughs> like pliers, you know, like, damn, I need to ask for a spanner, but I just don't know the word. Just at this time, it was my friend. I had a, a hematoma that was somewhere trapped between my skull and my brain and was pressing on my brain. It was, I remember these, these measurements when they told me six centimeters wide and two centimeters deep in a place where there should be nothing of that size. And the headaches, the pain, the agonizing pain as this growing mass of blood was pushing onto my brain. Such a weird experience because you couldn't see it. You know, it's not like a broken leg where you can show off your, oh, you know. And I was in hospital for 20 days, which is a fair amount of time. Jack, we both, we both share this story. 
uh, my Obi-Wan Kenobi, you've been through it all as well. I think in many respects, your experience was, was more draining, more demanding. Oh, and I don't I think so, mate. No way. Go, but oh, really? we'll, we'll, we'll go there. Yeah. <laughs> but your pain is worse than my pain. Well, uh, I was in hospital. And as you can imagine, when you've basically got this growing lump of blood pressing on your brain, I was asking myself a few deep questions. I was looking out at the window at the bird nesting opposite. And I started to become fascinated with that bird. I was in a room with four other elderly people, also had neurosurgical operations, either ongoing or they were recovering from them. And there was one guy who irritated me, whined like a little girl. I hated him. But over time, over those few days we were together, I started to realize how connected I was to him by a love that I couldn't even understand. And it was one of the most beautiful, moving, extraordinary moments. But it was almost like bolts of lightning and happy energy were flowing between me and every person out the room. I loved the doctors. I loved the nurses. I loved the bird. I loved everything about everyone in the world for better or worse. And whether it was just one of those little things that you have, you know, those little flashes, those little epiphanies, I understood that we are connected in ways we don't actually understand. And I saw it just for a glimpse and it's never left me. But on the other hand, it's receding into the distance. I wish I could go back to that moment, which is why when someone asked me, would you you know, would you change what happened? Would you try and avoid getting punched in the head or anything like that? I'd say no, I'd repeat it happily. Now I'm lucky enough that I survived the operation to remove that hematoma. I'm lucky enough that I didn't have my face smashed in my beautiful, beautiful aging face. Uh, <laughs> so outwardly you can't see it, but it's left a scar in me. I think about it almost every single day. Again, we live parallel lives. I was hit by a car, could have been killed at 15 kilometers an hour, severely broken shoulder, busted up left side of my body. They say 20 kilometers an hour is the death zone. 15 kilometers an hour is no joke. Then I'm in the ambulance, get a hit of morphine. My mom had passed away two and a half months earlier. I connected with her and I connected with my kids. Then came my story, which is also a TEDx talk. I want to die <laughs> a slow death. I try to redefine slow death, meaning we've got stuff to do in this life. Get it done because really, time is precious. You don't know if you're gonna die in 35 years or 35 minutes. This is gonna sound perverse, but it links with what you were saying. I don't wanna go through that experience again. Two and a half years later, I'm glad it happened. And it's behind me because it's not behind me, it's inside of me. It defines me. Assault on you and that moment of clarity, does it define you today? Are you in that perverse way glad it happened? Hey, if you're enjoying Story Warriors, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found me. And if you're looking to sell with more success or pitch with more impact, well, that's what I do. I help solopreneurs, startups, and Fortune 500s alike sell more effectively. If you want to talk about the challenges and opportunities you're facing in driving your top line, send me an email at jack at jackvincent.com. Now let's get back to this episode of Story Warriors, the podcast for crafting great stories. Assault on you and that moment of clarity does it define you today? Are you in that perverse way glad it happened? Yes. And the one way I think about this is the next time I'm in hospital on my deathbed or close to death or as close as I was, because I was really, you know, like I could have lost all sorts of different parts of my 
brain functionality. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's a risky operation. It's relatively routine to remove a hematoma. If you're a neurosurgeon, it's just another day in the office, but clearly when you're the patient, you look at it a bit differently. The way I try and measure everything I do now is I think when I'm on my deathbed, am I going to be happy about the way I've spent the, ne- the last 45 years of my life? There's a quote, which I want to read to you, Jack. Can I do it in Polish? Because it just sounds so beautiful. Yeah, please. And then I'll tell you in English. Sure. Do, do it, do it. This is actually from Vitor Pilecki, who spent 900 days in Auschwitz. So he wrote his memoirs before he was sadly murdered. It's an amazing story. Człowiek w ostatnich chwilach swojego życia, jeśli zechciał zwierzyć się, że przyznawał zawsze, że to po nim zostało na ziemi wartością, trwałą i pozytywną, co dać potrafił ze siebie innym ludziom. And this is an amazing quote for me, because he says, I spoke with many people, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit more of the story. I spoke with many people in their final minutes and final hours before they were killed and murdered at, at Auschwitz. And all of them admitted that the only thing that remains after us, which is worthwhile and positive, is that what we can give from ourselves to other people. I have that on a, it's just over there on my wall. I look at that every single day. And I think that Vitor Pilecki came to exactly the same conclusion you and I did. Coming so close to death, you realize that life is precious, not to be wasted to be used. I work like a nutter, as you do as well, Jack. Again, it's another parallel thing for us. And I'm constantly trying to measure it against the yardstick, which is, you know, am I going to be happy about telling my children I did this? It's one of the reasons why I can't do stupid YouTube films, even though I know I could get a million views by jumping in jelly. Easy. Million views on YouTube is the easiest thing in the world, if you're willing to stoop to that level. There has to be a higher value within what you do. And that can take many, many different forms. I so much agree with that. And if I may, my TEDx talk, is basically about finding your gift, creating and producing it, and sharing it. Because when we're done, the only thing, I don't know what happens to our spirits and souls. I really don't. Does anybody really? But one thing I do know is that our spirits lie in the hearts of others. And that is definitely what will endure. So we have to do this. We have to get it done. In my case, I kind of settled back into a normal. I mean, I was hit by the car, nothing like you, but I realized I could have been killed. The operation was draining. I get home five days later after five-hour surgery, and I'm basically living like COVID-19 confined, <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm, I'm able to cook. I just can't extend my left arm, but I'm doing everything else. I had these realizations. I gained so much clarity from that. But then six months, eight months, a year later, all of these strong lessons that I learned, and they still are with me, but I have to go back and rekindle them because I did kind of fall back to the old normal a little bit. Did you find that too? Yes. And it was so annoying because I, that moment of epiphany where I felt connected to everyone else was so beautiful so wonderful that I just wanted to live in it forever. Probably for good reasons, it, it's not going to remain with me. But, the, you know, the, it starts to mutate and evolve and it shows its faces in many different forms. And I found myself frustrated two years later that I couldn't return quickly to the emotions I felt then because life is so simple when you're in your deathbed, guys. It's so simple. You don't need to worry about money or anything else. The only thing I wanted to do on, that, on my deathbed or the, the bed that I thought could be my deathbed was just hold the hands of the people I love. And that in the final moment is the only thing that matters. I'm getting a little bit emotional now when I think about it because talking about it, which is not something, I, I try not to talk about it too much, but every single year on the anniversary of the day, I go back and read my diaries and watch the films that I made so that I never forget the, the purity of, of that day. But like I say, I think it evolves and mutates. 
it's such a wonderful feeling when you're helping people. And if there's anyone here who's stuck in a corporate job where you know, do you want to spend 35 years working for someone else doing a job that is not helping you, anyone else or society? Make the change, my friend. Be the change that you want to be in your life. Start with small steps. Don't give up on your day job. You can do it. I truly believe that. And my projects have mutated. I now work, I'm more focused on the future, working with Polish parents, helping them to raise their children. And this I see as a continuation of the work I was doing about Poland's past because it has this higher aim. So it has stayed with me. Wow. Did somebody take your hand? Did somebody slap you around at any point? You have this epiphany. You kind of float back. Today, you come back to it often. Was there a point where somebody had to slap you around emotionally to go back or to focus on the right things? A lot of times people say I'm completely mad, uh, mostly my wife and my family. I was in the hospital. Can I swear, Jack? Is Story Warriors? Uh... Well, we're warriors, man. We're in the heat of battle. I, I'm going to say one of my close relatives, uh, the minute they saw me in the hospital and they flown over, just basically took me to one side and went, you've been a stupid fucking little shit. Because <laughs> uh, I, I had consumed a little bit of beer before I was hit. So technically I have some responsibility in it all. So that was a bit of a wake up in the beautiful moments. No, I don't think so. But I spent a lot of time sitting in my room for the year afterwards, just thinking about the consequences of it all. And I came to this simple conclusion. I no longer count how old I am now. I count how many years statistically I have left on this planet. And that's a great way to think about it. Oh my God. Honestly, we live parallel lives. And I, and I, and I, <laughs> no, I think we're connected souls, man. I really do. Because it's actually in my TEDx talk and I don't want to draw attention to that. But <laughs> I was having four expat Anglos, the Yank, the Brit, the Kiwi, and the Aussie, we would meet for dinner once every four months or so. And one night we're feeling good, lots of wine, and we're going deep. Women don't believe men can go deep. We can. Wine helps. <laughs> and at one point I said, guys, my age times two equals probably dead. Now this is 10 or 12 years ago. My age times two equals probably dead. And the Aussie is like, Jacko, that's dark, mate. And I'm like, it's not dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's not dark. It's light because yes. I realize I've got stuff to do. I'm not going to swim the English channel. I'm you know, not going <laughs> to climb the Eiger. I'm not going to fight the fiercest lion. So I got to discard some stuff. You know, English channel gone. Lions gone. But I've got some stuff that I really want to do. And two years later, I had a book. The process of getting that started was slow, but it started. Now, the struggle, you overcome it. Don't you think it brings you to a place where you love more and that you love the lessons of the story more? And without that struggle, it just wouldn't be possible. Definitely, yes, because I have an inbuilt British cynicism, uh, a little bit of middle class hostility to anyone foreign, strange, not from my county. And that's not unique to British people. But the way it manifests itself in Britain is it can be a kind of sneering cynicism against other people. And I think that's it's culturally in me. Whereas the feeling that we're all connected by hidden electric bolts of love, you know, this higher purpose, that, that's just not the way I was raised as a child. <laughs> right. um, so the extraordinary thing was that I felt it with complete strangers, elderly men that normally I would have no connection to whatsoever. So I try and remind myself when someone irritates me on the bus that, shit, if we could just sit down and have a pint together, we'd probably end up just having the most extraordinary conversation. You know, more meaningful than we are now, Jack, you know, just some random guy. I think that stayed with me. I've got kind of emotional throughout this uh, call today, Jack, to be honest, I wasn't expecting that at all. Helping parents at the moment and listening to their stories about how they were raised and connecting with them. And I feel it again, 
And right now, because it's also a business, not earning very much money from it, but coming back to that question around that higher purpose thing is, you know, you're in the right place when people are crying, breaking down and having breakthrough moments and changing their lives and improving their relationships with their partners and children. You don't have to have a dollar sign attached to it. And that's something that I also think I grew up with. You know, it's basically the first question anyone asks, which is what's the salary? That should be the last question. (laughs) Sorry, I've kind of meandered there. You find stories in everyday people. And you find stories that bring very important people back to their everyday selves. That, you know, I've seen some of your interviews, and some of them are in Polish subtitles. Some of them are in English. Sometimes you're interviewing really important people. I never forget the video where your preparation of it, vacuuming the oh, house, yeah. you know, hoovering the house before you can sit down and start <laughs> crafting your interviews and showing all your vulnerability. But you bring people back to that place of really being human. What are you trying to achieve when you craft a story? Patrick's story. And now let's move to Patrick, the storyteller, which we kind of have. What are you trying to achieve when you go into a story? Or maybe you say, well, it's not one thing. When you're in the heat of the battle and you're going, oh, here's an opportunity to tell a great story. What are some of the things that turn out to be your objectives? A great question, Jack. And uh, people tell me I'm a good interviewer, but ladies and gentlemen, you've got to admit that Vincent's just got the flow. I do a little bit of journalism where I interview people for a show called Heart of Poland, and it's an impossible mission to try and discover the heart of Poland. And we need to have 36 and a bit million episodes because I would love to sit down and chat with every person in the country. It comes from a place, from an assumption, which I think you know is not unique to me, that everybody has an interesting story. I don't know if you know the show Desert Island Discs, Jack, where it's the longest running show in the world and they sit down and talk to people about their lives through the prism of the music that they love. And you have to imagine that you've been on a desert island and you're shipwrecked with five tracks. And what five tracks would you bring with you? What book would you bring with you? That kind of thing. And oh my God, I can, love, I, yeah. re- repeat that because I want to check out that show. I don't want to break your flow, but this is so important for me. Guys, uh, Desert what, Island what Discs. What's that? Desert, desert Island Discs. Desert the longest Island running Disney. show, radio show in the world. It's available for free. Anywhere you get this podcast, you'll be able to get Desert Island Discs. And they have interviews with celebrities. And it's the show I most model my journalism on because everyone has a story to tell. But the reality is when we constantly give interviews, I mean, Jack, you know this, when you stand up on stage and tell your story for the 55th time, or the person asks you, how did you get to Poland? Or what are you doing in Switzerland? Your eyes glaze over a little bit like an American porn star or <laughs> a shark coming in for the kill. You know, you just like, oh, here we go. And you're running on autopilot. And so much of what we say is on autopilot. So if I stop in the middle of a, you immediately wanted to hear the word sentence. And that's what I find so fascinating about language. It just as like a digression, when I started to learn Polish, the shackles fell off my English because I was completely unconstrained by the normal rules of Polish and I could just say whatever I wanted. <laughs> I would often offend people. But I, I realized something profound, which is there's a story behind the story. And that's why I interviewed the Polish prime minister. You know, the magic of, of an interviewer when you're trying to tell a story is to get your subject in such a position that they feel like they're just chatting to a friend by the fire with a pint or with Jack over a bottle of wine. And they completely forget the fact that there's strong lights and about 17 people and press advisors around them. And that interview with the prime minister, we can take that as a, as a case in point. The most important part of that interview are the two or three minutes that I spent with him beforehand, where we just achieved that. I like to think of it as like a twin track, a brain Wi-Fi. He feels comfortable in my presence. I feel comfortable in his. I'm not trying to alpha male the, the, the fuck out of him. And he's not doing the same to me. He doesn't need that. We're just achieving something together. 
And that means that you have to dig a little bit. And I love provocative questions. Um, some of the questions I like to ask are, what's, what's the question you hate answering? And if people inevitably answer it. Um, oh, I'm, I'm putting that in my list. <laughs> it's such a good question because there's always one question that you just like, oh God. And then there's always one question that no one ever asks you that's always on the tip of your tongue or at the back of your mind when you're being interviewed. So those are some thoughts around interviewing, but I do a lot of film storytelling. And I follow a structure, Jack, which you'll be familiar with, partly based on the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell started the manic desire for hero's journey. I think it's a very flexible framework for telling stories. Use it in advertising, for example, for our business. And I'm also writing a book proposal right now about my life for Poland. I'm basing it to the 12 chapters of the book on the 12 steps of Christoph Vogler's, who's a Hollywood writer's uh, yes, approach I, to storytelling. I'm reading his stuff right now. I'm ready oh, really? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Jack, I feel I, I, we need to check our DNA, man. Are we connected I know. somehow? This I, is crazy. I, I, I know. And by the way, I'm going to all things going smoothly with COVID-19. I'm going to be in Warsaw in November and I will let you know. And I'm going to oh, yeah? spend a couple of days to hang out. But we digress. But wow, <laughs> really cool. You are, for me, the quintessential storyteller. You really are. I love what you do. I connect with what you do. Okay, so now we've talked structure. Is there a specific tool when you're crafting the story, either on the go, you're in the heat of the battle, or you go into it? Is there one thing that you try to achieve the most? Is there one tool that you use the most that you think others could benefit from and it's a pearl of wisdom? I was a journalist at the age of 13, and I've always had an eye for the headline, which, as you know, played a very important part in the press back in the day and does today, for better or frequently for worse. It's playing a really important role right now in the Black Lives Matters and everything's happening in the US because cop slays innocent person or cop opens fire on someone who had a gun. That can change the dynamic of the story. So I'll give a couple of thoughts from a marketing perspective. The approach I use, for example, in ads and in storytelling is sometimes just to go with pain where you are right now, the aha moment, the reason why you're in that pain, the explanation of it, which builds authority, and then the invitation. And that's like a super condensed hero's journey in of itself, where you are right now, where you want to be in the future and how you can get there. And you can shake people from a position of complete apathy into action within the space of 500 characters or you know, 100 words or whatever. You can, you can move people miles in their minds with the beliefs that they hold just through the power of words. So I unfortunately err towards the catchy clickbait headline. I sometimes work back from the headline, which I think is an interesting way. You know, I did a film, for example, that had 2 million views on Facebook. Poland is cold, boring, and nothing ever happens there. And people were outraged. They were outraged. You know, these Polish people go mental until they got to the film, which was actually a cheeky, humorous way of pretending that Poland was cold and boring, but showing lots of shots of actually being really lovely. <laughs> what was interesting is people saying, how dare you say this, writing in the comments. They clearly hadn't bothered to watch the film before they even replied. And this brings me on to something else, which is this is a little bit of Patrick Ney's secret sauce. I quite often put mistakes and deliberate errors into my work because it annoys people. And unfortunately, guys, these are the rules of the game. Facebook, YouTube, these chat platforms don't care if you're right or you're wrong, if you're good or you're not. They only care if people engage with you. And I don't want to say faking news. That's not, that's not what I'm about. But for example, no. I'm, I'm quite happy with errors, mistakes, and stupidness. That maybe brings me on to one other point, which is you will be rewarded in everything you do if you're honest within yourself, if you're true to your story, if you're raw about your vulnerability, your stupidity, your inner demons, the parrot on your shoulder telling you you're not worth it, you're pathetic, you don't deserve to be where you are, 
if you share that story with other people, they'll love you in return because we all have that twin track thing going on in our head. That's awesome, Patrick. Where can the audience find you? You are someone who must be followed. Uh, <laughs> Patrick Ney, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-N-E-Y. Where can people find you? Well, I'd say if you're interested in stories about the Second World War that you had no idea about that will shock you, surprise you, amaze you, and change the way you think about that conflict, then definitely come and see me. I've got a lot of that. If you're interested in discovering the magic of Poland, definitely come and follow me. My name is Patrick Ney, P-A-T-R-I-C-K. Nay is N-E-Y. And you can find me just about everywhere except TikTok because I have my limits and TikTok is just too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're not alone. You're, you're, you're not alone. You sound like an old man. And, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and you're so much younger than me. Okay, Patrick Nay, you are an awesome storyteller. You have an awesome story of your own. And so you are a story warrior. Thanks so much for joining me in this episode, Patrick. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure spending time with my Obi-Wan, my, my brother from another mother. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you. And listeners, if we ever meet, buy me a drink. Let's have a chat. <laughs> I will see you in a couple of months in Warsaw. Patrick. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Story Warriors, the podcast for crafting great stories. If you've got something you want me to cover or an idea for an episode or any suggestions at all, I'd love to hear from you. Check out my website and send me a message at jack at jackvincent.com. Let's connect on social too. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you found me. Thanks again and hope you join me for next week's episode of Story Warriors. <laughs>